If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye. Come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Darnell Samuels and Joel Nikoloff. What up, bro? <laughs> uh, I'm good. Joel, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. I'm really good. I'm interested in gun control, gun violence, guns, violence. And solutions. Yes effective solutions right not well motivated solutions right right and then today we have that's exactly what the conversation is so we brought uh dr joseph smith on to discuss uh not just the problems of of the gun violence that we're seeing in the city but also solutions so what is it about him that made like that was the reason you wanted to talk to him uh well uh, i saw him giving a lot of he's always on cbc news so i always saw him on um giving commentary on the issue and they always brought him on and um i loved his ideas and how he articulated his points uh so i was just like okay you know what let's bring him on and, and give him more of a platform to unpack his ideas because he doesn't really get that much time when he's on 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 the news mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I know when he, I saw the clip of him on CBC News, I was like, why is this other guy talking so much? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. So, so we wanted to uh, get him on. Oh, yeah, CBC News is uh, Canadian government propaganda. Just kidding. <laughs> okay, what Joel said. <laughs> so, yeah, so Dr. Joseph Smith, he's a, an educator, a professor, and actually he's a professor at my alma mater, uh, Tyndale University and Seminary. Uh, he's a community worker and a human rights advocate. So this conversation is going to be very insightful. So you guys are going to really enjoy this. So, so uh, we're on the track, DJ. Okay, Dr. Smith, Hello? I'm going to refer to you. Hello. I'm going to refer to you as Dr. Smith. I work at a call Perfect. center. And when doctors yep. call in, they say, oh, refer to me as doctor. And then I don't because I think that's very arrogant. Uh, yeah, but because of, because of the worry. respect I have for you, oh, I, I want to put some respect on your name. All right? <laughs> so I'm going to call you Dr. You. Joseph because you earned it, brother. I appreciate that. <laughs> he, he's also still bitter from when I said his name with a girl voice a couple weeks back. So he's, he's... Okay. So, so Dr. Joseph, yeah. Dr. Smith, please. Let uh, tell the audience about yourself. Yeah, well, um, I see myself as first and foremost a loving son to a single mother, a husband of two years, um, an educator, a professor, a community worker, and I've been called an activist recently in the media. But I think a better appellation would be something like a human rights advocate. And as I think anyone committed to um, issues of pluralism, tolerance, and equity would be called one. And I'm delighted to be talking with you two today. Honestly, I'm looking forward to this all week, so I'm excited. Okay, good, good. So, your background, where are your parents from? Yeah, so my mother and father are from Jamaica, um, Clarendon specifically. Oh, boy. And 
Yeah. <laughs> and my father came up to uh, Toronto in the 70s. My mom came up in the late 80s, mid to late 80s. Yeah. Okay. okay, so were you born here? Yeah, so I was born and raised here. Um, 89, baby. So, <laughs> and I've lived in Janet all my life until I got married about two years ago. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, context is key. That's, that, that's very helpful. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, so... To get started, we recently did an episode, our, our 21st episode, on gun mm-hmm. laws in Canada and in the United States. But based yeah. on your research, uh, where do you, what would you say is the reason for the guns coming into the black market in regards to yeah. gun violence and gangs in the GTA? Yeah, I, uh, I recently read, I think it was a Toronto Star article. And they cited a renowned crime specialist, um, an author named James Dubrow. And James Dubrow essentially expressed that purchasing smuggled guns from across the American-Canadian border accounts for about 50% of the guns that saturate our streets. And so, like, these guns are mainly smuggled in through native reserves. And a lot of the guns that are on the streets are stolen from smugglers themselves. And I found that, like, incredibly alarming and shocking. Also, given the fact that with the advent of cryptocurrency, you can pretty much acquire a gun from anywhere across in the world um, for cheap. Uh, and it can also be delivered to you secretly or without uh, many people knowing what's actually within the contents of the package. So I think that it's frightening when you really look at the, the amount of guns that flood our streets that are alien to our um, society and alien to our country. They're unmarked. Uh- I'm, we haven't really talked about it on the show. I'm pretty big into crypto and, and just learning about yeah. it technology wise. I'm just curious what, you know, what made you kind of reference crypto? Cause I mean, I just think of like, how much different is that from cash and just in yeah. terms of context to, to what you've said? Yeah. So I'm not, again, like I'm learning about it too, as I go and I'm primarily learning about it from people that are five, six years younger than me. I haven't invested any money into the currency or anything like that. But from what I've heard through them, that there are areas within the deep web that you can purchase whatever you'd like, um, much cheaper, far cheaper than you could on the street. So the people that I was talking to about this, like, and these are barbers, these are um, community workers, these are just people I've frequented and, and dealt with over the course of the last couple of years, they said that they could get whatever they want. And they've seen ads and, and listings for things that they, uh, that they would never purchase themselves, but they know people that would be into purchasing it from drugs to weaponry to uh, prostitutes and things of that nature online. And for me, it's just fascinating. I couldn't believe that that's how simple it was, but I'm pretty much just getting some information from them. I've never explored this myself. So, But do you know any? Um, aspects of this where it can be like kind of insidious, the whole cryptocurrency world and purchasing things online? Well, the the main thing that comes to mind, I think, yeah. for most people is this, there's something called Silk Road uh, mm-hmm. that was a website. Oh, I think I heard about this. And, and I would actually say that there's excessive demonization based on ignorance. For sure. You're right. Um, so, is it possible? Sure, but I don't know that it's necessarily more like increased black market activity more than you know uh, like i think of like prostitution being used to be on like 
classified ads. I can't, you know, back page, yep. these like websites that yeah. like all of this yeah. was going on before crypto. For um, sure, for sure. So for sure. I, I I know that there's a perception of crypto being more in the black market, but yeah. I think that's largely around the ignorance of it, but also yeah. around um the fact that it's outside of the government like the black mm-hmm. market is, right? So there's yeah, a bit of yeah, parallel. Yeah. Um of course. So I don't I don't want to say that it isn't happening, you know, more. Yeah. Um yeah. but obviously you're not gonna email money transfer a guy for a, a gun if you're worried <laughs> yeah. about a paper trail. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. so I, yeah. I, I think there's some truth but but I think it's overblown generally. Yeah. 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 Oh, point taken. No, I, I agree. I hear you. Um, this is just, again, hearsay. This is from people that said that they've been online and they've looked at things that they could purchase and they've seen all sorts of things that they could get far cheaper than they could get on the street. But that's not, that's not what that cryptocurrency world is all about. Obviously, Bitcoin and all things like that. It's not primarily about purchasing things that are illegal. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, just a part of it. Different mediums change uh, the way we interact and, and the way we, the comfortability we have purchasing things that are illegal too. So, like maybe face to face, people would be nervous about doing something like that. But if they go online, they'd be comfortable. Of course. Ordering. Yeah, man. So, keyboard, cu- keyboard courage is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But okay. But. So then, okay. So in the article, mm-hmm. um, City of Toronto studies why youth turn to guns. It was done in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Fiona Scott, a research consultant who has worked for years in the prisons and forensic psychiatric hospitals, said uh, the Mm -hmm. circumstances that stem from poverty and trauma, such as a lack of time spent with parents because the Mm -hmm. adults are working, multiple jobs, uh, poor experiences at school, lack of positive role models. She says that these things affect the portion of the brain that's responsible for planning ahead and considering consequences. Now, you're part of an organization that meets this need. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just before I get into that, I'd just like to add on or um, supplement what was expressed in that article. CAMH released a study and it highlighted that youth and young adults from lower income communities are three to four times more likely to have poor mental health. Um, and this is solely due to the environmental circumstances and experiences that are preconditioned by poverty, right? So. And, and when you look at the medium household incomes, I mean, in the James Finch community where I grew up, it's between, you know, the years of 2001 and 2011, um, the medium household income only was about $3,000, from about $37,000 to about $39,000, uh, 39900 And I'm sure it's not that much different now. And that is a household income that is completely out of step, not only with the cost of an average house <laughs> now, which is rising into the millions, as we all are aware of, but mm-hmm. with also the almost $66,000 that the average Torontonian household brings in. So um, it's, it's quite a chasm between what a person in a lower income community takes home and what the average Torontonian does. And so in light of you know, these types of economic disparities, and compounded with other intersecting factors like race, of course, and ethnocultural orientation. Um, what I've seen in my work in the community, and also as an educator, is that uh, young men, especially from marginalized communities, feel the need to compensate for the lack of cultural capital they possess and the socioeconomic deficit that plagues their environments. And so, like in my work with Generation Chosen, the compensations are wide ranging from what I've seen. It's drug abuse, hypermasculinity, 
And subsidiaries of that would be things like potentiated forms of sexuality and homophobia and aggression. And the psychological ramifications are just as diverse, right? So we have like, I've dealt with suicidal thoughts. I've been up until like three in the morning just talking to young men who are uh, really on the verge, on the precipice of committing suicide um, as a result of just familial struggles and strains, extreme depression, anxiety, neuroses, mild bipolar disorders, body dysmorphia. Like there's just so many different um, symptoms that result from living in poverty and also dealing and contending with the experiences that come as a result. Uh, so yeah, Generation Chosen, we are trying as best as we can to make up for that psychosocial deficit by being an organization that, you know, generally cares about a human being's holistic development. So that includes economic opportunities, ensuring that the young men that we deal with, the young women that we deal with have economic opportunities, educational advancements, and emotional well-being. And so, and this is all being done outside of the traditional educational institution, right? Because at present, we feel that it's unable to accommodate the, the extent of the needs that are found in lower income communities. And just to kind of, I know, I don't like be rambling on a bit, but. No, 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 no. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I've, I've had the chance to work both in lower income communities as a high school teacher and also in more affluent communities. And. Again, a young person, from what I've seen in a more affluent community going to school, is able to circumvent the shortcoming of the traditional education system, given that they have the resources and the familial support to do so. So if they're not getting what they need from a teacher or for, from a principal or from programs in their school, they can get that outside. Their parents can pay for them to go to summer camp for three months and you know get classes taken. Um, in all sorts of different arts-based things and, and pretty much they can pay for exposure. And that's really what our young people in low-income communities are lacking. It's the exposure to things outside of their radius, right? Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make up for that deficit and we try to do that by primarily focusing on um, and helping to alleviate mental health issues through group counseling, mental health activities. Um, and we try to act as a hub uh, within which young adults can acquire the resources and the practitioners that can support them. And so, you know, that's really what we do on a weekly basis, Tuesdays between six and nine out of Emory Collegiate Institute. And we've been doing that for about two years now. We're going to our third year and the organization's just growing. We have about 120 participants right now registered. So we're going to have to acquire more funding so that we can build capacity and extend ourselves further. Um, on that note, I'm curious how yeah. how is the organization funded, generally speaking? Um, yeah, so we have private sponsors, um, people from the private sector that will donate money um, on a monthly basis. We also, you know, in the beginning of this program, it's pretty much out of pocket. So whatever I would work, uh, go back into the organization, and we have a team of five people, and so we all kind of contribute where we can. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's pretty much just our personal money. Mm-hmm. and uh, money from private sponsors. And so right now, we just recently received a couple of grants, one for 10K and another for 5K. And so we're working on some more applications for a larger grant. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. We, I've had, honestly, random people just call me and say they want to donate money. And that's been beautiful, just to know that they can, they can see the need from wherever they are in the world and 
they actually want to contribute to positive change. And mm-hmm. Again, emotional intelligence is something that's not often talked about or rarely ever talked about in traditional education settings. Which yeah. is frightening because <laughs> they need it. They need to develop their emotional intelligence. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, um, I mean, I, I'm just contrasting everything from a, an economics perspective in yeah. the sense that like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty critical of the traditional school system just in the sense that it's structured where there's there's a lack of nuance right it's about how yep. do we provide this to the mass um yeah. and and you know the fact that your organization is essentially almost 100% funded by private donors is yeah. is to me really demonstrating the fact that when you as an organization whether that's a school or or mm-hmm. you know something like you, what you're doing you know when you help you know the 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 benefactors of your organization better you're going to get more money right i'm sure there's plenty of organizations like yours that tried to do something like this and and failed and and no longer exist yeah Um, no so i'm curious what what do you think it is from uh you know with the students that you're or Mm -hmm. or with the individuals you're working with that makes you guys successful what about the approach what about you know what you're and then why do people or why is there a a good public perception of what you're doing good question so the first one i think it's our pedagogy uh we know that for the the young adults of this generation and i'm laughing because it's just i deal with this so often (laughs) whether i'm teaching at a university um and i teach at tindale in new york the attention spans are so short. So if you want to find a way to, you know, get them to imbibe meaningful information that can help them and increase their life chances and educational outcomes, you're going to have to not only be compelling, not only be precise, <laughs> not only be entertaining, but you're going to have to be um, extremely vulnerable and open to grip them and to keep them focused on the content that you're trying to deliver. And so what we've done is we've developed um, an emotional intelligence curriculum that is pretty much equipped to deal with the modern brain, the the modern learner. Uh, And that's, you know, young people between ages of 15 and 25, but we get people that are older coming to our program and enjoying or engaging in our activities. And so essentially for a year, it'll look like this. So for the month of uh, October, sorry, we'll focus on fear. You know, and then in, 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 in that, we will have about three anchor sessions. That's what we call them. Sessions to ground you emotionally. And in those anchor sessions, they'll last about 30 minutes. And they'll be, you know, high intensity. They'll engage you on the various um, ways in which one would learn kinesthetic, tactile, auditory, visual. And would ensure that your entire body is present in this activity. And so you're not only being stimulated intellectually, but you're being stimulated physically and emotionally. And so we try to make our activities as poignant as possible in order to convey a truth or a point about fear, for example, or anxiety or stress or vision or identity or resilience. And we do that for 10 months of the year. So each month is a different theme. In November, it's hate. In December, it's forgiveness. In January, it's resilience. February, is love. March is stress. And we keep going on and on until June. And so we just really try to craft our lessons and our, our programming so that it can really meet the needs of um, a young adult from this generation who can barely watch 30-second videos on Instagram. <laughs> and, you know, right. who can barely sit through it. 
So right, right. Yeah, that's real. And then you also asked about the um, intrigue. I mean, we're trying to utilize pop culture as much as possible to ensure that our our reach is as wide ranging as possible too. So that could alienate some people, that could marginalize some people. But what we found is that um, most people are very comfortable with looking at a video or a clip or someone talking as long as there's something very current as background noise or, um, you know, it's really just the art of media. It's media art. And it's really the art of videoing and, and, and editing and things of that nature to try to appeal to the uh, taste of a 21st century individual. And it's not easy. We have to do a lot of behind the scenes brain work to figure out what's going to be appealing, what's going to hit. Because not everybody wants to talk about depression, anxiety, and stress. So mm. we have to find a way to make it um, interesting and exciting for them to want to talk about things that are usually covered up and repressed. Right, right. So, yeah. Right. So, so I think, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I was going to say, I think, you know, the conversation around mental health is um, increasing within our society. So maybe that's also a reason why people are, you know, focusing or finding what we do appealing. Uh, because mm-hmm. they see that we're, we're addressing an issue that often neglected and it's on the rise in terms of people who are suffering. Yeah, I think I, what I, you know, my first thought is so much of our mental health yeah. treatment or whatnot is responsive yeah. rather than proactive. Yep. Yep. And what yep, you're exactly. saying is much more proactive in regards mm-hmm. to, you know, EQ or emotional intelligence. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and I like that you mentioned EQ too. It's how you handle, how you operate under duress, right? Yeah. And that's something that young adults, especially from lower income communities, need to equip themselves with, given that they will, you know, invariably deal with um, a lot more obstacles maybe than the average person. We all go through strains and struggles, but they're going to be dealing with it from the age of six, like I was. Mm-hmm. So, do you yeah. do you notice a difference between um, when you go between districts? Um, the kids, their ability to their EQ. Do you notice a difference? Oh, do you mean like? Sorry, I think I missed the first part. Like generationally, or you mean like? Uh, no, no, no. Just like you said, when you when you go between schools, when you go from oh, one um, school to yeah, another. Absolutely. So you know, my definition of emotional intelligence is the capacity to accurately assess and know how you are feeling in a given moment, and know how the person you are interfacing with feels, so that your relationship can be both rewarding and life affirming. That's my definition. So when I, and you know, emotional intelligence also includes how charitable your interpretations are of the world around you, mm. right? So how generous, how generous are you when you're interpreting someone's um, misbehavior maybe, or someone's just normalized behavior? Are you, are you a, a charitable person when you're thinking about how they're acting and interacting and speaking with you, or are you not? Mm-hmm. So when I've gone to, you know, schools like a Tobacco School of the Arts, Tobacco Collegiate Institute, for example, where I've worked, I've seen that the students there are able to articulate um, clearly how they feel <laughs> with one another, but also with teachers, so that the outcome of that interaction is beneficial for them. And it's, you know, this is, you know, tying into advocacy as well, but also just being, them being able to address, like, in that moment, I felt, you know, inadequate, and I don't want to feel that way again. Maybe it's not you, maybe it's me. I know I'm very sensitive. I know I have to work on some things, but maybe you can talk to me after class instead of calling me out in front of the class. Things like that. That's mm-hmm. not something I've seen demonstrated to me often in you know schools that I've worked in in the Jane Finch neighborhood um, or the Jane Finch area. 
just because no one's really taught, no one taught me how to speak that way. I acquired it through my mother and I having countless pretty much therapy sessions on a couch <laughs> where I was telling how I'm feeling and she would like help me articulate and express how I'm feeling and, and make it comfortable, make me comfortable as a young man, especially a racialized man. Wow. To be vulnerable and open about my feelings. So I, I, I lucked out and had that. But a lot of the kids that I'm around and, and dealing with on a weekly and daily basis, they don't know how to express that they're feeling off today because they never ate properly in the morning or they're kind of tired. They'll just just react, right? You'll just get outbursts and aggressive behavior, especially for the young men. They will act out because something happened three days ago with their older brother, for example. Mm-hmm. And then that would land them in the office. And because they're still un- incapable of talking in a calm voice, in a reasonable, uh, reasonable tone to the principal, that will then get them expelled. Right, of course. And so, yeah. You know, it, between the years of 2000 and 2005, when the liberals pretty much introduced zero tolerance policy um, within, educa- within schools, a lot of my friends that I was growing up with, they were expelled simply because they didn't know, know and didn't have the tools to speak to adults. And it's very intimidating to speak to adults when you're 13. Mm-hmm. But if you have these, this skill set, this emotional intelligence skill set, you can interface with anybody. And you can feel quite confident and, and confident in um, the results being positive or to your benefit. So a lot of kids were expelled. And those kids ended up not um, having consistent experiences in school after that one expulsion. So it became repeat expulsions at different schools across Toronto. And then what ended up happening is they dropped out of school by 16, which then led to the year of the gun. And mm-hmm. this is what I saw firsthand, right? I saw my same friends who were going to grade nine. They were unable to deal with teachers properly. They were dropping out by grade 11. And by that time, they're 17 and 18. And, you know, it's 2007. And, you know, <laughs> there's no way to make money other than selling drugs or, you know, doing other things that right. are nefarious within the community. So I think it all stems to emotional intelligence and mental health issues. I think, um, you know, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm very, as I said, I'm very critical of the, the current school system. And yeah. I, I'm seeing a byproduct and maybe you can, if you disagree with this, let me know. But yeah. I think there's this, aspect of what you're talking about playing mm-hmm. out in the political discourse in yeah. that someone disagrees with me i assume their motives are the worst yeah exactly um and i see you know it it almost sounds like that's what's happening for most of these students not mm-hmm. just on their half but also the teacher Yep. Right. Yep. Like, oh, the kids acting out. I mean, they got to deal with thirty kids. They don't necessarily have the ability to differentiate yeah. between the fact that, oh, wait, that kid looks extra tired today. Yep. You know, yep. or whatever the nuance. They just go behave. You know, yeah. and it's very like hard fast. Um, you know, when when you were discussing or or kind of laying out what it is you guys do, there's a couple words that that I thought were really or or a couple terms that i would say mm-hmm. are lacking in the school system that you really yeah and, and uh do which is yeah um you talk about keeping the kids engaged mm-hmm. you didn't yep. use that word but but that's what i interpreted i also yeah. thought you're teaching the kids how to learn or, yeah, or cognitive right. abilities whereas mm-hmm. school how is to receive information yeah, yeah and process and and respond yeah. versus yep. write this down and remember it later 
right? And so there's there's so much like more in in your scenario, so much mm-hmm. teaching how to learn, teaching yeah. how to think versus mm-hmm. here's the information we that you need to know. Yeah. And and that's yeah. why I would say school system is is you know, archaic. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And there's there's this uh podcast I listened to with a guy who's a private school principal in um, a third world country. I don't know the specific country off the top of my head. And he was talking about how they had a course where they didn't have a teacher one year. So they just gave Mm -hmm. the kids the material and the course Mm -hmm. itself got a better, like they had a rating (laughs) of like five. And now that when the smarter kids were helping the, you know, the other kids who didn't quite comprehend the course got a rating of like eight. Wow. And, and it's about, Mm -hmm. you know, engaging the information, struggling through it, learning it versus just like, know this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and, being comfortable with sitting in a bit of suffering for a while, right? Like learning and reading text and being a critical thinker involves suffering and it involves sacrifice and it involves questioning yourself and constantly assessing if your initial impression of something is correct. Right. So the emotional intelligence piece fits right into that because when you're dealing with human beings in relationships, you have to sometimes doubt your first impression. I think most of the time you have to doubt your first impression so you can be more critical mm-hmm. and more receptive to who the person actually is rather than, you know, accepting your snapshot judgment. And because we live in an a educational system that it wants to expedite the educational process, right? And it's because it wants to prepare you for work. That's really what, I mean, if you ever watch any video by Sir Ken Robinson, um, it's, it's incredible. Like he's so precise in, in diagnosing the, uh, problems of our modern education system, but it's because it's trying to expedite the process whereby you get a job and you contribute to society economically, because until you contribute economically, you're a burden on the economy. That's the, that's, you know, a bit of a thesis from, uh, Sir Ken Robinson. But anyways, the point is that there is, it, it takes a lot of time to really sit and think through something and, and, and uh, receive it in the correct way. And right. there's something else. Yeah, I wanted to mention something else. It's, it's kind of uh, skipping my mind right now. Well, well if it while, comes you, to you. while you think yeah. about it, I was going to say, yeah. you, you, there's another, it's actually part of your, your, the Generation Chosen website, but I think you've, you've, mm-hmm. you haven't used the word, but you've been talking about it, which is, to some extent, perspective. Yeah. And, and giving you know, people the tools to go first, m- most likely my initial response is emotional mm-hmm. and then gain exactly. the, pers- you know, take into perspective other people's views, how this scenario may have unfolded might actually yeah. give me the reason to go, wait, my emotional response wasn't right. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's something a lot of young men struggle with. Um, from what I've seen in my work, it's, it's they would most often, and you know, they try to downplay the degree to which they're emotional and the degree to which they feel things. But their first response, if you yes. were to chastise them for something, is that you're an enemy. And this speaks. This is what I want to say: is that you are highlighting that on a macro level, our political debates and conversations seem to imitate maybe very childish, immature behavior in terms of <laughs> everyone's polarized as a result of not properly listening or not properly interpreting. Or the combination of the two, right? That's mm-hmm. the exact same thing I see in our classrooms when I'm doing generation chosen work is that there is 
a reluctance to sit with an impression or a thought that's provided to you by another or the other and, and to really take it in and to, and to, you know, you know, sift it through and think it through. And so what ends up happening is that there's all these bifurcations. So one mm-hmm. night, I mean, when we started the program, we had fights breaking out. So we had a couple of fights that broke out in like the first two months. And it was because in our program, people come from all over uh, different priority neighborhoods. Um, our program is an amalgamation of different youth or young adults from di- uh, different priority neighborhoods. So we had, you know, rifts and turf wars yep. pretty much embodied in the young men that were coming into the program. And a fight did break out and I stopped it. But that didn't stop them from coming back because the organization had a culture where everything can be, you know, a culture where everything is believed to be um, resolved. Everything can be resolved. Mm-hmm. So right. because they were, they caught on to that um, ethos, they really, they came back and they were more peaceable the next time. And I had to sit them down and, and talk it out with them. But no one, they told me after that, no one ever talked to them about the implications of this one fight because I, I laid it out to them. I said, you do this today in seven weeks, that person comes back and they have a knife and you didn't even feel too strongly about this person or care too much about the, you know, whatever they did to annoy you or frustrate you. Is it worth getting stabbed or is it worth something else, some payback coming your way? And they understood that, but no one sat them down and talked to them about the implications of their actions. And that's all about interpretation, right? How you're thinking through the world that you're living in. Mm-hmm. Right, assessing implications. So, yeah, it's I'm I'm just drawing some parallels with like a story from my father as well as sports. Right, like my yeah. dad. My dad said to me, "Some of my best friends came out of guys I fought with." Mm. Yeah, and exactly. you know, because whatever it is that like you know caused you to get into a, a kerfuffle, mm-hmm. assuming you actually had a a relationship with them in the first place. Yeah. If you actually engage with them, whatever it was, mm-hmm. most likely, okay, cool. You got your anger out. I got my anger out. Not saying that's yeah. the way to do it, but I know what you mean. Even in hot, like I, I grew up playing hockey. The amount of times yeah. you hear about even <laughs> NHL players yep. breaking yep. out in a fight during practice, yep. and like yeah. they're like, yeah, it's no big deal. And the media yeah. is kind of like trying to jump on it and and make it yeah. more than what it is. But like mm-hmm. to some extent, that physical confrontation. Yeah. should lead to to whatever the real issue was being resolved yeah. rather yeah. than Absolutely. building animosity. Absolutely. And I think the tie-in there is that they're both wearing the same uniform and that gives them a sense of camaraderie and togetherness. And when you come to like Generation Chosen, they're not from the same neighborhood and they don't wear the same uniform. So it's harder for them to reconcile differences. They just think that they're different human beings, mm-hmm. like from different necks of the woods. So, like, the idea is to give them the same uniform, right? To kind of, in, to clothe them in the same kind of mental habit that would allow them to recognize that the person from Keel and Finch is not different from the person from Driftwood, for example. Mm-hmm. But that's something that, that, that's the work that we try to do behind the scenes to, like, kind of encode them with that kind of a thought process. Right. So, just changing speeds. Yeah. In regards to funding and how to solve this gun violence issue. Uh, mm-hmm. So we see like after the Danforth shooting, uh, Doug Ford wants to put $1.9 billion 
um, into psych health for uh, police officers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, throwing money at the problem and looking at that, based on your research, uh, what's your take on how the government uses money to stop <laughs> gun violence? Um, well, first and foremost, it's been extremely difficult to follow the money trail in the recent couple of weeks in terms of what allotments are going to what organizations and groups. So we've heard a variety of things. So the first thing I remember speaking about with CBC was the $15 million that was earmarked from all three levels of government. Um, $3 million would go to Toronto Police Services, $12 million would go to community programs. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that they're not really going to community programs, they're going to Toronto Police Services again and uh, Toronto Community Housing. <laughs> and that was the first you know iteration we had of money is being provided to solve this gun violence issue. Then we had this whole conversation about Doug Ford taking um, about $1.2 billion away from the $1.9 billion that was expected to go to mental health services over the course of 10 years, which is, you know, far less money than the Liberals promised at the time. But he wants to take $1.2 billion, apparently, and give it to Toronto Police Services over the course of four years. So Mm -hmm. I heard that, and I was like, alarmed. What are you talking about taking 1.2, some 1.9, and giving it to Toronto Police Services again? And then recently, we have the $25 million, right, um, to get to go to Toronto Police Services to solve this issue. It's, it's just proving that our current government, and I would honestly even say the last government, had a very neoliberal approach to dealing with crime, right? And that, that mm-hmm. the idea that you reduce crime, you increase investment. That's just like the economics of it all. Or you reduce yep. crime and productivity goes up. So that neoliberal attitude is always going to be reactive. It's always going to be, oh my goodness, there's a problem. How do we clamp down and silence the problem as quick as possible rather than looking at three decades from now and assessing how do we increase the quality of life right, and the life outcomes of those who are um, consistently seen as the perpetrators of violent crime in the city. It's just mm-hmm. two different um, paradigms, really. It's like we're operating in different worlds, but honestly, for the last 15, 17 years or so, that's I mean, even longer than that, but I'm just saying roughly in my lifetime, um, from middle school to now, that's been what I've seen play out over and over again is that the money should be used in ways that uh, react to the problem immediately and, you know, silence the issues for a couple of months to a year or two. And there's, you know, there's political gain to be had as a result, right? Because most people they react out of fear, of course. And, and when, when people are afraid, they'll give in to anything. Not to be right. all willy about it all, but war is sometimes peace <laughs> with regards to neoliberal attitudes. Kind of, if I can, if there is a perpetual issue, um, I can now have the power to use monies in all sorts of ways and people won't really think through how the money's being used. I can now gain the authority to divvy it up however I want. So, you know, when you say 25 million, 1.2 billion, 15 million, people get excited. Like, oh my goodness, a lot of money is going to solve this problem. Money is the answer. And the equation goes, if I throw money at it, the problem will go away. Um, it will only go away for a um, temporary period of time. And really, it's going to go away by arresting people that look like myself. Uh, right, right. Because uh, Doug Ford seems very pro-police. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's not to say that, you know, we don't need police or that they're not. We do. They're we do need them, but, right? But mm-hmm. it just seems like every time money's being put towards the gun violence problem, it's about putting mm-hmm. boots on the ground. It's about hiring more officers. It's about yeah. uh, their mental health. 
It's yeah. all reactive. I mean, it's funny because yeah. at the beginning I was talking about how I, I really like that your organization is proactive. Yeah. Right. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're demonstrating to some extent that you're like by being more productive in, in yeah. the things that you guys are doing, mm-hmm. you're demonstrating that one of the biggest problems with government is that there's there, like, I always say this, the government is a hammer. And everything's a nail. Yeah. They have one tool: spend money. <laughs> yeah, and, one tool. You're right. And and unfortunately, there's a lack of comprehension. Like you guys are yeah. clearly identifying what are the causes for yeah. these individuals. You know, yeah. what are the common characteristics? Oh, mental yeah. health. You know, getting kicked out of school. Okay, but that's yeah. not the cause. The cause is why yeah. did they get kicked out of school? Yeah, and, exactly. And you know, going deeper. And and for me, it's a demonstration that. You know, depending on government to spend money mm-hmm. to solve our society's <laughs> problems is yeah. just futile. And yeah. rather let society come up with solutions I, as I entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then we as a society support them instead yeah. of taking my money by tax dollars and then choosing to spend it in a way that clearly is not productive. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's a. Uh... It, it is a glaring example of that, that the private individual can, in many cases, come up with better solutions and resolve more issues than um, huge conglomerates like the government, right? And, yeah. Well, you have the ability to deal with nuance, whereas yeah. the government, even the school system, right? It's, it's designed yeah, so for the mass. Yeah. Yeah. And the nuance yeah. is ignored. Right. No, totally. And, yeah. uh, you know what, Joseph, it's, it, it's one of those things where I'm seeing, you know, top down economics, bottom up economics. And yeah. I'm, I'm loving the fact that, um, you're not just posting things online yeah. and, and, and you're, you know, putting your, um, political view out there, but, but that you're actually doing work on the ground. Yeah. Right. You actually have street credibility. You're actually building with the with these guys because it's one thing, you know. Let's be honest; it's one thing to to argue your your political point, and it's another thing to Honestly, see you're actually doing it um, yeah. on the ground and 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 finding the funding on your own uh, through the private yeah. sector and not being reliant on the government uh, yeah. to change things. So I I love that, and and um and this is very encouraging. So so yeah. thank you, thank, thank you for you. the work you're doing. Thank uh, you. And- yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say that it's, I guess this is to the points that were raised before about private individuals. If you are actually investing um, in private individuals, you can increase innovation and creativity and economic activity within your society. Mm-hmm. It's, we are cutting ourselves off from generations of insight and mobility and, you know, innovation really. As, as a result of not being proactive in terms of thinking decades ahead and investing in, you know, community organizations or ground level work that could be done to really include more people, right? Because th- the work that we're doing is trying to institutionalize inclusivity. So it's like, how do I ensure that these kids take their rightful place in the Toronto of 2030? And the only way you can do that is by actually engaging with them on a regular on a person-to-person level and mm-hmm. giving them the tools they need. Well, first assessing what do they lack and then giving them the tools they need to succeed. But I don't, I, it's, it's, it's shocking to me that the short-sightedness because 
these are people that can actually contribute some incredible things, um, both morally, spiritually, intellectually, and economically to our society. But right now, it's it's, it's uh, quite lopsided, and you know the the income inequality gap is only growing. So mm-hmm. it's the only way to bridge those gaps is to invest in people, right. and uh, they can come up with solutions on their own. <laughs> right, and I, I can't wait to see the fruits of your organization. Uh, and, and see what happens. Uh, we thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you. Now, before you go, uh, let the audience know how they can get in touch with you. And maybe how they could donate to your organization. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you can donate to us through our GoFundMe account. Um, our website is www.generationchosen.ca. On that webpage, you'll see our GoFundMe account. You could donate there. I've had people donate to me uh, via email transfers and things like that. Actually, the money goes directly to Generation Chosen account. Um, my email address is joseph.junior, J-U-N-I-O-R, dot smith at gmail.com. Our email address for the organization is www, oh, sorry, www. <laughs> it's Generation Chosen One. So Generation Chosen One, O-N-E for one, um, at gmail.com. And yeah, follow us on Instagram at Gen Chosen and on Twitter and Facebook. And you can see all the things we're doing. We're going to summer camp next week on Monday. And we're going for about a week and we're taking about 25 uh, young adults. And we're going to a camp where they get to know how to build solar panels, you know, and learn about environmentalism and and entrepreneurship. So follow us. You'll see what we're trying to do, trying to change we're trying to affect. Cool. And I'll make sure to include all those those links on our our show notes page. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Again, thank you for your time. Uh, Thank you. Lovely talking to you guys. All right. Thank you, Dr. Talking to you. Have a good one. All right. right. Thank you. Bye bye. But you heard me? Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.